Welcome to the She Births Show Season 4, a place to inspire your birth, evolve your parenting, and help you live a life you love. I'm Nadine Richardson, your host and creator of the scientifically verified birth education program She Births. I'm also a mother, yoga teacher, doula, author, and speaker. At SheBirths, we have supported thousands of families around the world for over 13 years with our unique program. And our vision is to make birth better for every family around the world so that everyone experiences a beautiful birth no matter what unfolds. Not only do we help people have beautiful births, but we also give them the skills and the philosophy to enjoy pregnancy and make parenting easier. As well as our world-class birth ed, taken either face-to-face or online in our app, we also have a free pregnancy guide designed to help you feel calm, connected and inspired as you and your baby grow. We have a doula matching service, the perfect way to ensure you and your partner are completely supported throughout the whole journey. And we have our soul mama circles, which are the perfect postpartum network to help optimize your mindset and design your life in parenthood. Remember, if you like what you hear today, subscribe, share with a friend and leave us a review. If you're a parent about to be one, fellow health professional, Join us now for an inspirational deep dive into topics with experts around the globe. We hope you enjoy this special episode. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 5. Today I speak with Dr Robin Thompson, the founder of the Thompson Method for Breastfeeding. Robin's offerings to breastfeeding women is based on over 45 years' experience as a midwife and her PhD research, which explored why so many women are discharged from hospital with breastfeeding complications. The fact is, in our country, that even though 92% of women want to breastfeed and initiate feeding after birth, 80% will give formula in week one, and only 14% of women are exclusively breastfeeding by six months. And the number one reason why mums say they discontinue breastfeeding is pain. So if you feel like you have failed or struggled with breastfeeding, know that you are not alone. Robin and I both agree that respectful and individualised care is key to success, as well as early education and preparation which is why at SheBirths we focus so much on those first three golden hours and core principles to help you have a longer breastfeeding experience and spend time connecting you with all the support systems, especially our doulas, as well as all the other networks that you can reach out to to get support when you need it. The Thompson Method challenges our commonly accepted cultural approaches which are often forceful and rushed inside our hospital systems. In our conversation, Robin and I talk about that importance of personalised one-on-one expert support, the one thing you must never allow others to do with your baby, the importance of how we hold our babies, especially their little heads, and the numerous ways that systems can fail us with feeding and birth, 
and what you can do to avoid them. Please make sure that you visit our friends at The Thompson Method by going to thethompsonmethod.com, which is spelled T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, thethompsonmethod.com. I hope you enjoy. Oh, Robin, you just got to repeat what you said because I was asking you, should I ask you any specific questions? And what did you say? I said I don't make plans. Um, I actually... uh, I actually, life's a journey. Yeah. So life is a journey. I don't make plans because plans are, I think the language I just used was messes, messes people up. But there are people, in, of course, who do need to plan because they can't survive without planning. But I'm one of those who, who doesn't plan. Things happen and they happen for a reason. And it's not for me to question the reason. It's for me to go on the journey. Got it. Beautiful. I didn't know you were a philosopher as well as a breastfeeding expert. I'm not a philosopher. (laughs) That was so nice to have you. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on the She Births show and, you know, being with us in your busy schedule and, you know, your busy business with your family, with your daughter. I'm so jealous that you get to work with your child. And um, because I would love to just keep my son next to me forever. Today, we're going to talk about the three golden hours and the importance of preparation um, and education, you know, before we're in the postnatal ward. Yeah. Before we meet our baby, right? Why is that even important? Do you think to talk about these things and to learn about breastfeeding before we're there? Well, the journey starts way before that, way before that. The journey starts with the unique woman, her unique background, her unique family history, the, the, the whole soul uniqueness of her, the genetic uniqueness of her, the biophysiological uniqueness of her. Uh, it's all, it all starts way back when she, when it's coming to her as the individual woman. So um, I, I prefer to talk about the transitions of pregnancy through, and, and, and if we could start with even young, younger women who before they're pregnant, not even younger women, women before they're pregnant, I've got to watch your language too because, you know, I'm very careful with how I, how I try hard to use um, particularly midwife-friendly language. You know, we have to be listening and, and uh, respectful. But I think um, from, from if we focus on each individual woman that's, that is in, in our care, uh, then we learn so much more about her. She teaches us so much more about her. If I hadn't have been had the opportunity to be with women, yeah. beside women and compare that with being in charge of a labour ward for years, also working with medical colleagues who actually cared, who actually we, we looked after each other and on the basis that we were looking after the woman all the time. We didn't have the conflict that's happening now. Um, we didn't have the competition that's happening now. Had none of that sort of thing happening. So on that journey, um, a woman's unique pregnancy, we, we get to know about her and her baby. We get to know her journey as it's unfolding. We cannot guarantee anybody 100% that things will go the way they want or things that will go well, but we do our very best. We do not go out to cause harm. We never go out to cause harm as far as I'm concerned. We go out to be 
be the, the wonderful midwives that we are and we're helpful and we do all the things that we need. And we consult with those that we need to in a complementary way. I um, don't like the word collaboration. I like the word complementary because each of us have skills mm. and they are complementary and they're always to the benefit of the mother and baby. So we go through this journey um, and, and then when the woman comes, depending on what her experience is coming into labour, pre-labour, early labour, established labour, whatever her journey is, and they're not the same, but at the moment everything's expected to be the same in the same time and everybody's supposed to do the same thing. So you have limitations on what you can and can't do and that's not the way the maternal unique body and her baby functions it doesn't work that way no. so we come back to being in tune aware respectful nurturing with that mother and listening carefully to her because she always knows we don't know like she knows we do not have her internal knowledge we do not know her uniqueness in in the way that she does we do not know her instinctive knowledge so when we learn to come to her with that respect, then we learn much, much more about her journey and how she's achieving her journey the way she would like to. And we're always available to uh, seek help if we need it. Yeah. That, that, that's very, very important to me uh, and to my colleagues over many years that I've been privy to be around. Um, you know, so many wonderful colleagues that I've um, experienced time with Annie Sprague in Victoria, um, Jenny Peratt, um, Claire Lane. Claire Lane particularly spent a long time. We were buddied each other, so we mm. had a buddy, buddy system. And and that that time of this woman's journey is not our journey. It's us to be there for her journey. And it's hard in these times for a lot of people to be available for women's journeys. Yeah, too. that's right. And I think we have to start turning things around. And we have to say that if we're going to take on this privileged responsibility, it's a very much a privilege to take a journey with a woman, then we have to make sure that we are available unless there's something urgent that happens with us. And then we have a buddy system that we uh, are all aware of and that we it's complementary to that woman as well as anybody else who might be involved. And then we focused on her for the whole of her labour, however long that takes to, for her to give birth to her baby. And we focus on what her needs are during that time, not what our needs are, not what our rhythms are. And we work with her in a way that's gentle, that's calm. We, we, we protect her space. We don't let people walk in and out. We expect them to respect her wishes as well. We do not do unnecessary vaginal examinations. We do not need to do that if we're side by side with a woman. We can see. Yeah. And she tells us as well. And we can see the progress of her labour as we gather more experience, more knowledge, more wisdom. You see all of these things. So often women would, in, in my years of home birthing, would never have a vaginal examination. They didn't, totally. need, didn't need it. No. And so I think what we're doing now and what the women are saying too, to me particularly in, in my practice, is that, you know, too many people are touching them, too many people are telling them what to do, how to do it, when to do it. 
terrible things are happening. And when you hear their stories, which fortunately I have recorded or written or, or recorded and written um, stories and data from, from women, which will I, I'm hoping will end up in more research uh, along the track, uh, hopefully before I pass on from Mother Earth. But if not, it'll be... <laughs> It'll be there for my team to to uh, establish something with the experts, um, and so therefore we we're, it's not our journey. It is not our journey. It's our journey to be with and beside. Yeah, and it's our journey to to make uh, the the woman's wishes heard. If someone's not listening, it's our journey to be there for her and her family because her family is important to her too. Yeah, and to protect her all the way, and 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 we must be strong about that protection too, not coerce. And I've just been reading things from the UK on experienced midwives um, asking questions about why midwives are actually sweeping membranes, why are midwives rupturing membranes, why are midwives putting balloons in a woman's cervix. Why are midwives doing ultrasounds, but they're not allowed to know to, to report them? Um, you know, all of that sort of thing has to stop from my point of view. If you yeah. are a midwife, you're not medicalising a woman's body. You're not medi medicalising her outcome. Yeah. So there we get to the first breastfeed from there. Once she's had her baby, we do not touch. We are the only mammals in the planet that let others touch our babies except Wow except for those in the zoo. Wow. And I think, Pang, we should just pause there and just allow people to take in that sort of picture that you've created, you know, the ideal and the systemic kind of disruptions that are happening. And then I just, yeah, the reality is no one touches no a mammal's baby no. apart from the mother. That baby has come from its knowledge with the mother from her uterus through the journey, whichever way this baby has been um, birthed. I talk about uh, abdominal surgery. There's only two ways a baby can be born, vaginally or abdominally. And, and, and vaginally, it can be, babies can be extracted and abdominally they're extracted. But, you know, what, whichever way it is, it does not matter. We do not touch as long as the baby's APGAR score is seven or above. And then we recognise that a baby may need, not always, but may need some assistance if it's below seven. But we try not to separate. Instead of taking a baby over there in the corner, we bring that close to the mother so totally. she's in contact with her baby all the time. And we try very hard not to change the smell the taste, the sensory skills that that newborn baby has and we do not rush and we do not think this baby is going to have the first feed immediately. Each baby is unique. Each baby takes the time it's required and if the baby is affected by uh, regional opioids through anaesthetics or even um, general anaesthetic and opioids, then it takes time, it takes patience, and we, we have to take a step into the direction that simulates what would happen with that little baby and that particular mother under her unique circumstances at the time. But a woman who's actually able to take her baby in her own hands, 
preferably no one else touching, but sometimes it's necessary to help guide. But if you're guiding, you guide by bottom and shoulders at the back. You don't guide by anywhere where in the front where the baby's sensory skills are alive and alert, ready, ready, ready for survival. It's all about survival. Yeah. So say that again. So if you had to guide a baby to the mother or to help the mother, you guide from where? The back body? Shoulders, shoulders, nice and firm, open palm, and gently guide that way. Um, If Mm. necessary, you feel a bit slippery, you can pop a little towel on your hand and guide to the mother that way. There might be circumstances, say, where it's different in a water birth where, for example, I've had a baby born with cord wrapped around its body, so just guiding the baby, rotating it through the water gently to unravel the cord into the mother's hands. Yeah, yeah. And that was um, a mother of uh, four children, still stays in touch with me now. And her kids have sort of grown up. Yeah. And I'm seeing lots of the grown up babies now. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, it's ways that you can do things without being rough, without being um, uh, loud in your your voice. For example, instructing a woman to push. Yeah. Directed and active pushing. Yeah. If you're instructing a woman to push, you cannot read her knowledge. You cannot read her instinctiveness about what she needs to do where her baby is. You go by her sound, yes, but you are over intimidating her. You're you're actually, uh, and and even in a circumstance where you've got fetal heart rates changing, it's common for a fetal heart rate to change during coming through the outlet. It's very common. It's not a panic situation. It's about a, a, um, a, a professional approach to it where you're listening and you're working it out. You don't panic. You and do there's less panic. panic, as we know, when someone is with woman, like you said, yes. you know, that consistency, that knowing the mother, knowing yes. the baby, being there the whole time provides then, such a wisdom. Yeah. And not having her flat on her back where she's powerless. You know, flat on the back is just terrible to, to, to do that to a woman unless she is anaesthetized to a point where she cannot be. But then off her back is most important because every time she's on her back, that sacrum cannot rise. That's right. It, it does not rise. It does not let the baby come through the center, the middle pelvis and, and it, it obstructs things, as they call it, obstructed labour. But if they were to turn her on her side and do the old-fashioned thing, elevate a leg and then maybe turn her to the other side, that makes a difference because the pelvic ligaments can then move. Half will move and then half will move. Yeah. And, and it helps. But flat on her back never helps, ever, never. And I think we have to, you know, just consider for a moment that a lot of babies and maybe coming through a very stressful second stage. Do you think, you know, in instructed, directed pushing scenarios where mums are very stressed and, you know, she births babies were found um, to have a 53% reduction in resuscitation post-birth. And maybe that is to do with a shorter second stage that the mums had in the she births trial and so on. But do you think babies, you know, they get some of this adrenaline in second stage is there benefits of adrenaline? Are we going through second stage in a more stressful way? Is that impacting the baby and their feeding? What do you think's going on? Yeah, no, I can't answer that because every mother, every baby is unique. So yeah. I'm listening in the moment. Everything's in the moment. We cannot 
predict what will happen. And if we start discussing these things in a way that's negative, then we create fear. So her, her, her adrenaline will rise just through the fear of what she's heard previously. Yeah. So it's about looking at her in that unique moment. What can we do to help whatever the situation is without um, imposing on her and creating fear? Yeah. So what is it we can do? Of course, if we need to move swiftly, that's different. And we know how to do that. Of course, if we need to seek um, a higher level of care or a more experienced level of care outside of our scope of practice, then we do that. But we do it in a very responsible way, not in a way that, that disempowers the woman and creates terrible circumstances for her. Absolutely. So I think just, just being there with her, making sure that she's mobile when she wants to be, making sure she's mobile how she wants to be, not how we want her to be. Totally. Making sure that she's got access to uh, a deep, warm water, immersion in deep, warm water. She, If she's got access to that, she'll know when she needs to create the buoyancy and take the... the um, the nerve ending, relieve the nerve ending pain that she's feeling with each contraction. The buoyancy, I have beautiful photographs of women who just got in the pool and their facial expression changes completely. Their body language changes. And, you know, that, that buoyancy feeling is magic. Mm. I think we uh, should be concentrating more on that and in the deeper circumstances more on sterile water injections yeah. if we need to re to change the pain way to the to the, the gateway. Okay. To, yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think we're going far too hard into making this uh, what is has been for centuries women giving birth to a um, an illness model. It's it's you're always sick. We're going to find something wrong with you. We're going to do this with you. We're going to do that to you. We're going to tell you how to do a normal birth. <laughs> and we're not going to speak with you. We're going to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> or even talk about you in third person. I see that. I mean, I feel like everything you're talking about absolutely is the essence of midwifery of being with woman. But I feel like you're mirroring back so much of what I do as a doula to try and fill the gap sometimes in a very busy hospital system um, that most of our mums are giving birth in, yeah. as we know, you yeah. know. So, And the problem with us too is the uh, insurance industry, the regulation industry, the uh, a, a nursing controlling us, not midwifery. Uh, we are professionals in our own right. Yeah. We do not have to conform to what other people tell us to do. We need to be reasonable. We need to be accountable. We need to provide a duty of care, which is required. And we need to share with women what the law of consent is so they know where they stand when they really desperately don't want someone to come near them or touch them. The law of consent is clear, very clear. Yeah. We're actually going to do another in-depth podcast. We touched on that in our last one 
a little bit, but um, there's a lot to cover in truly what is informed consent and yes. how to negotiate and understand that, you know. it's helpful. Well, we don't have to even negotiate it. We have to say mm. if it means no to us, we that's respected. We refuse. However, if it's an urgent situation or a more of an emergency situation, we know that the senior, not the juniors, medical um, person who's been with that woman sometime in her pregnancy will make decisions we know that so it's not it's it's i think it's listening to women rather than negotiating mm. i think we have to listen to what they need and then we ride that through until such times it may change we yeah. look after her in the way that she expects to be yeah provided a service and provided the, the nurturing and care that she needs and you know when you get old like me and you're on your way off the planet, you, 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 you get to the point where you've had all this years, you've had all the education, not all, you've had all, heaps and heaps of education. You've, had, you've gathered heaps and heaps of experience and that's increased your knowledge base. And, and, and I have to say I learned most of it from the women. Yeah, I, I learned things from the women that I never learned in the system. However, vice versa too. I learned things in the system that I really needed to know and needed to be able to deal with and I could go through a whole lot of stories with that. And then you get to that level of wisdom and then you get to this stage of, you know, getting close to closer and closer to where you have to speak out. You can't just sit back and let all this happen. You speak out and you do. And, you know, the research is good, but we need the voices with the research. Totally so, agree. Not just not the, agree more. No. It's, and, and the importance of anecdote, the importance of story, the importance of an individual's experience to be noted like you're doing mm -hmm. alongside big data. You know, there's a really disembodiment of reading data um, that doesn't allow us to kind of integrate or understand or empathise with experiences of mm. women. Mm. And understand, I think, with birth as well, anecdote has created the research as well. You know, observation came first. And I loved how you said at the very beginning, you know, when you did your PhD, you have been observing for many, many years. And similarly in creating SheBirths, I put it purely down to observation and intuition and iteration, you know, to design things as they are. But looking at the anatomy, looking at the big picture, but simply observing that unique woman. And now for a quick break. SheBirths is where science and nature come together. As the only scientifically verified birth education course in the world, we can help you understand nature's intelligent design for birth while learning the most evidence-based birthing skills. We know that by getting to know yourself and by educating your team well now, you will be able to manage more of the challenges ahead with ease and grace. From our free pregnancy guide to our world-class birth education, to our post-birth soul mama circles, you can be supported to find the mother within you. Our doula service is bespoke and provides only the best in class trained birth support to SheBirth's families. Over 60% of our mums choose a doula in their birthing room and we know that they will have the best care, best pain relief and evidence-based support 
for their empowerment. Go to shebirths.com forward slash doula, D-O-U-L-A, and book a free 15-minute consultation today to discuss your needs. So what did you discover doing your PhD? What did you learn? What were the biggest ahas for you as an individual in all that observation? Well, I was terrified that I was even going to do a PhD. (laughs) I I regarded myself as a a very reasonable, probably a good practitioner, but I never, ever envisaged doing research. I never envisaged becoming becoming an academic. And um, I'm very thankful for the three guru professors that took me on this journey. At first, I put them off for a year because I couldn't cope with the thought of it. (laughs) And then suddenly, um, you know, my question about why, you know, as an experienced midwife and as a midwife who'd spent years, 25 years with women at home in the long term, how how was it that so many women were coming out of the hospital system with breastfeeding complications, in particular horrific nipple trauma, not just nipple trauma, but horrific nipple trauma, of which they were so kind to let me take the photographs of what I was seeing. My breath was taken away so many times because I didn't see that with the women in the in, that I was working beside, with and beside, over a full journey um, at home. So I, that, that inspired the question. And from there, I've never done research. I've never done a database ever. I started a database to try and see if I could find out if there was a connection somewhere. And, of course, that developed over time and um, I presented at different conferences. It was analysed by experts, not by me. I'm not an analytical expert. And, um, and so then it became that we, we, we actually, um, uh, well, that's where I started to be encouraged by people hearing me speaking as a, as a novice, as a novice at conferences. And, uh, and, and so it grew. And, uh, and, there, and there I was able to begin to understand what was happening that I thought might be making a difference. And it was, and I've written a paper on this with Professor Leslie Barclay as well, that over the last um, 50-odd years, we've been taught a particular way and in that particular way of um, uh, watching the baby's behaviours and seeing what was happening, my brain was asking more questions. So then I went to the anatomy and revised all the anatomy and that I could, and I've done recently, I've just finished revising or doing a whole presentation on the tongue muscle. Because wow. it's happening to young babies. So that was, that's my in, internal persona is to ask questions. I ask questions constantly. I think I must have driven my mother mad over the years. <laughs> That's a good thing. I'm glad she allowed you to do that. You know, we want all girls to say no. We want lots of people to say oh, um, yeah. questions. Yeah. But what did you, what, I mean, why were these women coming out of the hospital with such horrific nipple trauma? Well, in, in the statistically significant evidence in the end, it was because we were interfering with their craniocervical spine because we were uh, using the language by holding their breast like a hamburger. How terrible is that? 
Wow. This is not a hamburger and that we were being taught to direct the nipple to the nose. And then when you think about the anatomical structure of the oral cavity, what's up behind the nose? So that took me to the connection between the craniosophical spine and the oral cavity. And, you know, right down the cervical, seven cervical vertebrae, what was the connection there and what was happening? And so that's, that's what started the journey of me understanding much more about um, why women were having different mm. types of nipple trauma where I actually then divided the nipple into three four parts, nipple and areola, into four parts where I was seeing the trauma, four separate parts. And that's all in my education program. Yep. Um, all of that's there and it's also in my PhD. But I've, I've learned a lot more since finishing my PhD too, learned mm-hmm. lots more. Um, and then um, at the end of my PhD when I was awarded it, I I didn't know, but my professor, Leslie Barclay, did a, some uh, research and then informed me that I'm the only one that had looked at breastfeeding in this context. So mm. No one had bothered? Well, I don't know whether they hadn't bothered. I don't think they just had seen what I had seen. I, I think I think people have asked questions and do amazing stuff, but I think I had the absolute privilege of being beside women, yeah. thousands of mothers and babies over time. And I think that's what what the guiding factor was for me to to be able to understand it and then to be blown away by a guru of this country, um, Professor Leslie Barclay, telling me that. Then I got all goosey and thought, oh, it couldn't possibly be. <laughs> but anyway, it's it does it does absolutely statistically still works in my practice. Yeah. And now I have a team of people who are now coming up. And, and beginning to, to uh, and, and soon my academy will start and there'll be, uh, be a lot of people coming through the academy as well. So in your, um, within the Thompson Method, you're educating mums during pregnancy as well as supporting postpartum. And you and I both know it helps to do the preparation and learn prior Mm-hmm. to being on the postnatal ward. So we really want to, both of us really want to make that emphasis mm-hmm. um, today to anyone who's listening. I mean, what are the main issues that you are seeing over and over again? Uh, the same thing, babies being held by the base of the craniocervical spine, by the base of the occipital bone around the small brain, controlling the, the function of the small brain where the baby can't, is restricted. That's right. So basically someone grabbing the back of the baby's head, let's put it in layman terms for someone to understand. So the, the back of the baby's, of the baby's head. head between the, the web of the thumb and the forefinger, holding yep. that and then uh, grabbing a mother's breast and yep. then trying to get as much of a piece of steak into the baby's mouth as possible. And I say that yep. with respect because you imagine someone shoving you to your dinner plate with a lump of steak there and just holding you there and you can't move. So you cannot function. The oral cavity does not function when we do that to tiny newborn babies, newborn and young babies particularly because the older babies start to tell you to go away. Yeah, they You can even feel it in yourself. When I grab here, I instantly 
you retract. I had a, I just have to say I had an ex-partner who used to always want to hug me and put his hand in the back of my occiput and it used to flinch my head back. It's like the well, most horrible it, feeling. It interferes with the nuchal ligament and the nuchal ligament is, is, is a ligament that supports our head, neck and shoulders. It's the nuchal ligament that's damaged in whiplash. Mm. So every time we force a baby to the breast, we are simulating what happens in wow. whiplash, but in a tiny baby. Wow. And we speak to a whiplash specialist and he was absolutely blown away. He said he'd never even considered it, but he said it made sense to him. He couldn't comment because he didn't know enough about it, but he said to keep going. Wow. Mm. So basically babies... And I've got to say, it is the majority of babies, particularly post-abdominal surgery or analgesia, that will be assisted towards the breast mm. um, and will be held in that way. And I watched you talk on the ACM webinar, the Australian College of Midwives webinar, and it was just so simple and so beautiful and yet not actually easy unless you're, you've shown it, how to hold that baby and cradle the baby and allow them to kind of move towards the breast more and then the symmetry changing but without grabbing their bottom as well. So tell us more about that hold even, like because people are normalised to this grabbing and this moving the stake into the mouth. They are very normalised to yeah, it. Dean, it's a whole presentation on its I know, own. just give us some <laughs> pearls of wisdom because people want yeah. to... You know, they want some value, I think, you know, and there's, I think if you can, whatever, yeah, little pearls. Yeah, watch what the other mammals do, those that hold their babies, cradle them. And and uh, the important thing is that if if you, your baby needs to be able, every woman, every, I say this all the time, every mother, every baby is unique. So you need to know that unique mother's body, her arm length, what you're looking at is absolutely unique to her. Yeah. How her baby's coming to lips over nipple, how her baby's symmetrical at the breast, uh, how for the four points are, uh, are contacting the breast and how you fine-tune that. Now, that's a lot of, yeah. a lot of um, you know, a lot of work. I'm working with a whole lot of people on that at the moment. It's yeah. They come online with me and with the women's consent and they do a full feed with me, so they're learning. Um, and uh, and what's very important, there are other small, smaller things that women don't actually realise they're doing. They're holding a nappy because they're not properly supported and their breast might not be supported very well. It might be too heavy for the baby. There's a whole lot of yeah. nipple direction. It's great to understand all that. Yeah, yeah. so helpful then, to hear those comments, yeah. If your hand's on the nappy, then that brings this upper arm forward. When the upper arm comes forward, it tilts the baby's head. Then you're trying to, without even realising it, pull the baby back to make yourself more comfortable. So when you're pulling the baby back, the, the tongue is shortening at the breast. It's not lengthening at the breast because the chin's moving away. Mm. There's a whole lot of fine-tuning. Not a whole lot. There are lots of fine-tuning, and it's and the fine-tuning is done precisely with the unique woman and her body. Yeah. No two are the same. No two are the same. So, And sometimes it happens quickly. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer. It depends on what they've been introduced to in the hospital, often with oral devices. So when the baby get, becomes conditioned to the oral device, the tongue oral function changes, the tongue muscle changes, and then everybody thinks the baby's got a, I don't even use the word, it's got a frenula that's supposedly to be cut. 
Mm. And, uh, and so I think once the concept of understanding all of that put together and seeing it so many times and seeing, hearing the feedback from the women, like um, uh, 70, I think 79% had um, nipple trauma in total. Wow. And, um, and so of those 653 women, 85% said they were pain-free or pain-reduced in one session when I sat beside them. Wow. And one was like, well, not one, there was a few that were pretty horrific. And to hear them say that was like, and that still happens now, not 100% of the time, it can't. No. Because it just depends on the circumstances and the uniqueness. However, most women most women have a sensation that it feels better. And, and they'll say that many times on all the videos that I have yeah. in, my, in my library, many times those women say, oh, you know, it's like a, a, a huge relief comes over them. Amazing. And I think, you know, it brings us back to where we started. It's a unique journey, individualised care, that one-on-one work yes. is just so important. Yeah. yeah. So you're team are working with individuals and running like short sessions, working around, I know the mum's schedules, just so it makes it a lot easier for them as well. Like it's a huge, that's a messy business to coordinate, but like you say, we have to do it. (laughs) I know, but we have to do it for our women. You know, you've got to work like a doula. You be on call, a home birth midwife. They're not our women. They are beautiful women. (laughs) There's my language. I've done a module on language. So with the help of, of my team, we're all putting into it and then we're going to ask um, women to put into it as well. But changing our languages, like the word I don't want to ever use again is to get, to get. Right, to get a woman or to get a baby yeah, to yeah. do. I see what you mean. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And I still use it occasionally because it's imprinted in my brain. Yeah, like of course. Imprint, and But I, I'm, I'm actually gradually becoming much more improved at not using yeah. and and that's only one of, of hundreds of words that we uh, have done this module on so that's one of the modules Fascinating. In, in the academy yeah. so we we are gentle with those women they are, and again like you just said put it in context so we understand it and mm. that's true too that's really really important to have the context and the pictures and and the understanding that that bring home the message and then to see it in action as well and to see the uniqueness of every woman in action Mm. is is very important and the baby's behaviours as well. Yeah. Yeah, And there's so many changes a baby's going through in the first uh, six months of life, rapid changes happening. So we're working with that as well. Yeah. I think, you know, women at the moment in Australia, particularly in New South Wales, you know, with the amount of lockdown in Victoria, there's a real lack of exposure to the variety of ways that we feed and that uniqueness yeah. to us all. And I think yeah. there's beautiful learning that happens in a mother's yeah. group and being able to see other women's breasts and other babies. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's a real shame we're missing a lot of that face-to-face at the moment. But, yeah, yeah. I'm sure videos and being in groups is incredibly helpful, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and very few of the women do not want to share. They Most of them share. And there might be a reason for someone and, you know, one of those reasons can be sexual abuse. All of that sort of thing comes into our sensitivity towards each woman. Mm. 
and, and also comes in with the general examination. Sometimes we just do it as a routine. We do not know often or we do not think of how this woman might be uh, yeah. feeling or what may have happened in her lifetime with her. Yeah. So yeah. it's a lot of lot of factors that that um, for me is very, very important to each individual woman. And yeah. I'm hoping that, you know, I can pass a lot of that information on. And I do have one lovely student midwife who's now my student midwife consultant and she has that title in my in my practice and she's brilliant she's about to have another her fourth baby beautiful <laughs> she's a student midwife and 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 you know it's and and i think most of the women on my admin team that, that you know respond to women fairly quickly um uh, have been part of me seeing them in the very beginning of their experience as well so they've grown with the desire to help other women, mm, which absolutely. is good. Mm. And so if you could just say, you know, a few really important things, what are the most important things you would like to say to the pregnant women out there listening right now? What do you think is to most the wonderful pregnant women out there, <clears throat> every one of you, uh, that you have rights and please, please take the time to understand your rights. The law of consent is so important to you because no one can do anything to you unless you give consent, unless, as I said before, there is an emergency reason and then the senior medical officer and practitioner will take over, not the juniors, but the senior. And also that... Um, uh, it's very important to know that you can have a second opinion. You do not have to follow something that's worrying you or concerning you. You are, There's no way in the world that you have to be coerced by fear. If something's worrying you, then you sit back and decide what it is you would like to do for yourself if that's concerning you. Fear does not help a woman grow her baby confidently, give birth to her baby confidently, and also signing pieces of paper six weeks before is not an appropriate way to provide consent either. That creates fear as well because it's a just-in-case situation. We And then you start to worry about that. I describe women's, our brains, all brains, as like a merry-go-round sometimes. And sometimes you've just got to slow it down and step off for a minute and then come back to, you know, the first come back to where you are as a unique woman and what's worrying you. And to, to have as much information that you can have, because we're all different, that you need, and also to acquire it in the way that's best for you. So some people read, some people see, some people listen, and, and, and whatever's best way for you um, is to acquire the information. But remember, that's broad information and we are not all the same. So we are expected to do things the same way in this modern world. And we're expected to do it in the same time framework. We're expected, our little babies are expected to grow in the way the graph from around the babies around the world tells us. But then what we're not doing there is being responsible, taking into consideration family history, genetics, Genetics play a big part in the way, knowing that a baby will lose weight to start with because that's the way it happens. And they don't 
come out gaining weight. There might be a few who do, but most of them don't come out unless they're filled with non-human milk. And, and a baby is not meant to be filled with non-human milk. A baby's been, a human baby's been me, meant to be fed with maternal milk mm. and, and first colostrum, but then maternal milk. Um, we don't go drinking the elephant's milk and they, you know, the mouse doesn't drink the elephant's milk and so on because the research says that uh, we are species specific in the provision of our of our nutrients for our baby, uh, our babies. So yeah. I, I think the more we understand those sort of things and how wonderful women are and what they can achieve, and if they can achieve it in the quietest possible way without pressures on them all the time and fear generated, then we are doing a really wonderful job for the future generations of our country. Yeah. And probably the world, because I'm working with women around the world too. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm covering a good part of the world and women are interested. And so if I can do that, then I'm adding to, to that too. But we have expectations that we fit into a mathematical model. Yeah. And we are not mathematical. We do not fit into a mathematical model. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. We are all unique. Yeah. And I... Thank you so much for your work that you've done and all your research and what you brought to today into our conversation, not just about breastfeeding, but about understanding, you know, quality, consistent care and love of our bodies and our women, our women, beautiful women, not allowed to say our women, (laughs) our women. I mean, the whole planet, you know, you can say, you can say our women. It's just, I pick up on all this. It is the women of the world. They, you know what, without the women of the world, we will not have the future generations um, that, you know, have that beautiful approach to things. So every mother with her baby from the moment of birth, unless there's an immediate problem, is is not our, it's, it's our work as professionals working with and beside a woman to ensure that happens. It's her baby. It's her body. That's right. Absolutely. Amen to that. Ashe. So be it. Um, Well, we're going to send everyone to your website, to your daughter and her wonderful team that keep it all ticking on. But thank you, Robin. It's just been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for sharing today. Thank Thank you, you. Nadine, too. Lovely to talk with you. Thank you. I hope I haven't been too naughty. (laughs) (laughs) Never. I'm Nadine Richardson and you've been listening to The She Births Show. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share with a friend and leave us a review. We'd love to know what you would like to hear more of. You can find me and my team of amazing doulas and educators at shebirths.com and our awesome community on Instagram and Facebook. Within any good app store, you can download our free pregnancy guide via she births two separate words and plural as well as access our range of online courses remember when it comes to having a better birth an easier transition into parenthood your education is your empowerment don't forget to check out the catalog of previous podcasts and thank you for tuning in today i hope you enjoyed the show